Welcome to the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. The 1980s and 1990s were the tough-on-crime era, with lots of new laws passed that dialed up the sanctions for various offenses. But there is a lot of rethinking of tough-on-crime policies going on today. Are we sending too many people to prison for sentences that are too long? Have we set up too many other hurdles through fines and fees that make it hard for people to ever make their way out of the criminal justice system and onto a productive path? Senator Will Brownsberger thinks the answer to both those questions is yes. He's the lead sponsor of a sweeping new criminal justice reform bill on Beacon Hill, and he joins my colleague Bruce Mole and me for this week's podcast. Senator Will Brownsberger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. So let's hear a little bit about the big criminal justice reform bill that uh, that the Senate's unveiled. Uh, can you just give us a sense, sort of at the sort of at the, at the big overview of what is it that, in your view, this is setting out to do? Well, it's soup to nuts. We look at every part of the system from front to back, and we're really focused on uh, reducing incarceration where we can. I mean, incarceration is necessary sometimes, but we know it's always harmful. And where we can reduce incarceration, we're trying to do that. Uh, but also we're trying to reduce entanglements, the way people get tangled up in the system. They get in trouble on one thing, they get in trouble on another thing, and one thing leads to another. That, that happens all the time. And so we want to uh, cut some of those uh, things that bind people into the system on a continuing basis. And so, and so has the criminal justice system become too overbearing, too, has had too much overreach uh, in recent years? That certainly seems to be the the sort of takeaway from from the idea of trying to, you know, as you say, reduce the entanglements, reduce incarceration where possible. Well, let's talk about both of those things because they are different. I mean, the entanglements thing, there's just a whole lot of rules that people have put in place that have made sense. For example, if you, as an incentive, you know, if you, loo- if you miss a court date, you lose your driver's license. Okay, well, that's a, a message that we want people to don't miss their court dates. But the real consequence is that people just lose their driver's license, and then the result is that they have another court problem, and one thing leads to another. It just keeps cycling. So we've we got to cut back on all those sort of uh, things that flow no matter what happens, whether the person's trying to do the right thing or not. The fees, the fines, the criminal impact, the criminal record impact, the stuff that follows people around. We've we tr- got to try to cut back on that stuff. And the incarceration thing... Uh, it's just a reality that in Massachusetts, we are locking up four or five times as many people as we were 40 years ago. In Massachusetts, we are locking up four or five times as many people as we were 40 years ago. And those, those people being locked up are con- concentrated in a few neighborhoods. And that means that you've got extraordinary, you've got a real problem. Incarceration itself is a problem. Crime is a problem. Incarceration is about fighting crime, but incarceration has, has gotten to a point where it itself is a problem. And what's, what's the problem from, from that concentration of well, incarceration? Well, the result is you've got uh, kids without fathers and mothers, and you've got um, kids who's, who, who are, have, don't have the right kind of role models, and you have um, people who are unemployable, you know, you have, you have, who've been through an incarceration experience, who you know, have got a huge gap in their resume, a whole set of life opportunities that they weren't developing, and uh, it kind of spirals downwards, I think. When you say you want to reduce incarceration, do you have any sort of forecast if, let's just say, you don't know how much your bill would reduce it? No, we definitely don't. And I think that's, um, the truth is that the criminal justice system has a whole lot of degrees of freedom in it. And, you know, we can turn knobs and make a difference, but ultimately it's about what prosecutors and judges and police do uh, with the tools we give them, with the messages we send. 
And of course, it's about how the community uh, responds. And, and so there's, there's a whole lot of variables that any projection of reduced incarceration would be, is very much guesswork. But in some of the more, let's say, conservative states that have tried to reduce incarceration, they've talked about um, doing so because it, I mean, they've sold it in a way as, let's save some money here. We don't need to be locking so many people up. Well, that makes a certain amount of sense, and I think we can expect to save some money. But I think that money is secondary for most people in this field. I mean, public safety is something that people will spend whatever it takes to achieve. I mean, people want to be safe in their homes, in their neighborhoods. And so they're not really about saving money here. And at the same time, people are about justice, and they don't want to see people who are salvageable uh, shredded up by, by criminal justice involvement. Um, so I, I, I don't, I, and, I, and my observation, and if you look through the data across a lot of the states that have set out to save money, well, you know, they actually haven't achieved greater uh, prison reductions than the states that haven't set out to engage in big reforms. We've, had, we've seen some prison reductions in most states, and the states that, you know, trumpeted reforms that were cost-saving oriented haven't really achieved, obviously, greater results. So what I think we're trying to do here is you know, we'd like to save some money. But you know what? I, I, if, if we save, if we reduce prison populations, that's the question. If you reduce prison populations, the first thing I'd like to do is see prisons become safer and more rehabilitative place. I'd like it to be safer for guards. I'd like you know, the, the correctional officers themselves. I'd like it to be safer for the inmates. These aren't terribly safe places. I mean, people get hurt in these places. Um, and uh, so money saving is, although it's an attractive thing, honestly not at the top of my agenda. What's a guy from Belmont leading this charge for? You know, how do you get in that role? Well, you know, I um, when I was in law school, I I, I didn't give this direction uh, you know, a, a lot of thought. Um, uh, I was, you know, as as a as a as a kid, um, as a teenager, I certainly you know used drugs a little bit. Um, there, you know, it was a period where I used them. You know, a few months in there where I used drugs regularly. But by by the time I was a junior in high school, I was a health nut. But um, when I got to New York, I was working in New York after law school, and you know, I was in the middle of the crack epidemic down there. And there were, I was in the, I found myself in the middle of drawing gun police chases four different occasions. You know, living in prosperous, living and working in prosperous areas of Manhattan, and so there was something going on that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I came back to the Attorney General's uh, office in 1992, and um, at that point I was so I was sort of like. There's something wrong with what we're doing in the drug war. There's something, you know, if, I, if this was something I could get into and out of as a kid at, at 14, um, you know, why, what's all the shooting about? And so I, I got involved in a, um, an academic program at Harvard, uh, sort of a, a working group on drugs and addictions. They kind of liked the idea of involving a prosecutor, which I was at that time, who had liberal views on drug policy. That's it was sort of intriguing, check the box, um, kind of affirmative action item. Um, and uh, so I was, I was involved with that. Um, and... Um, I was very. It was very. It was a very interesting experience. So for about, I, I, that was a ten-year ride for me. I got involved in some meetings with a lot, and writing and teaching and consulting with with a lot of the people that are really at the top of the drug policy field. But at a certain point, I got tired of talking about people with addictions, and I really just wanted to talk to people with addictions. I had this feeling like, you know, what is what's really going on out there? Um, and I started working in drug court in um, in Brighton and in Dorchester, and. The, my whole orientation changed dramatically, and, and it didn't take long uh, because I, I'd been a real fan of the idea of drug courts and using the criminal justice system to kind of push people into recovery and so forth. 
And then I learned real quickly how badly the criminal justice system chews people up. I mean, what a blunt, blunt instrument it is in terms of changing people's lives. And so I've, uh, you know, I'm strongly of the view that we want to keep people out of that system if we, if we at all can. So our bill, you know, looks at decriminalization, try to uh, reduce the flow in the so-called school-to-prison pipeline. It looks at diversion. It looks at reducing mandatory minimum sentences. It looks at bail reform. It looks at a whole bunch of things at the front end. It looks at the issue of primary caretakers and uh, making judges think twice if they're going to lock up um, somebody's mom or dad. Um, so it's a, uh, it, you know, that's how I, I kind of got it got into it. It didn't it didn't sort of come, didn't sort of come like okay, this is my experience. Uh, but it, it, when, once I started representing people, and I discovered what it meant to st- stand next to people in trouble and understand where they're what they're dealing with, um, just it, it shifted my thinking about the whole issue a lot. And so let's talk uh, a little bit more uh, down at the ground level about some of the specifics in the bill. You've touched on a few of them yeah. just now. Um, certainly the, and, and we've been talking a lot about the issue of drug crimes uh, and, and the question about mandatory minimum sentences for drug crimes has in some ways, I think, sort of emerged sort of front and center, at least in the early discussions around the bill. Um, you know, it's sort of, a, it's a hot button issue. Um, the question of mandatory minimums has been, been, uh, been one that's been kind of at the top of some people's list of areas to look at for a little while. So can you just talk a little about what, what is it that the, specifically the bill would do for, in terms of uh, repealing some mandatory minimum drug sentences and what you think the argument is for doing that? Well, um, think of the drug businesses in three layers. Like, kind of like any other business, you've got your customers, except when you're talking about drugs, you talk, you talk about users. Then you've got your retailers, and we can call those dealers, and then you got your wholesalers. We can call those traffickers. So what this bill says is, look, if if you're not a wholesaler, you're you're, you're just a dealer, or you're you're a user, or you're, or you're both. You're a lower level person, and we don't want to automatically use the criminal justice system as a response. We don't want to be that that to be the mandatory response. Judges retain the option um, under the policy that would remain if this bill passed to sentence somebody who is dealing drugs up to 10 years in state prison, which they almost never do, by the way. I mean, that would be an extraordinary long sentence. So they have a huge hammer in their hand if they want to impose that kind of penalty. But we don't want to mandate uh, incarceration. We want to get people into treatment or we want to get people into jobs. I mean, people who are in dealing drugs need to make a transition into a lawful kind of economy, and we want to push people in the right direction instead of putting them in prison and making having them come out virtually unemployable. Um, we are not backing away from the higher-level tra- wholesaling offenses. We're kind of lightening up a little bit on the whole co- cocaine wholesaling offenses. We're, we're raising the, the minimum so you can get a mandatory for at 18 grams. If you traffic 18 grams now, we're going to raise that to 100. Uh, that's a significant step upwards. But there's a lot of people captured in that 100 level, and it's kind of surprising that we're still punishing cocaine as harshly as we are and devoting as much resources as we are when it's clear that our real risk right now, the real epidemic that we're all fighting hard against is opiates, um, you know, heroin, and the new synthetic opioid drugs, fentanyl, and its various um, chemical analogs, which are all extremely toxic. And so we don't back off at all on trafficking the opiates, uh, the opioids. In fact, we strengthen the, the Commonwealth's penalty structure for 
opiates by including the synthetic opiates, opioids in them. So fentanyl, which is killing hundreds of people every month in this state, is currently not subject to any kind of mandatory for um, trafficking, but we fold it into the same structure as, as heroin. And so for these other offenses, uh, the sort of lower-level dealers that you would remove the mandatories on, and there's some other particulars that there's currently a mandatory sentence if you're caught dealing within a school zone, uh, and, and there's some other provisions in the bill. What is it, I mean, what's been the impact of having those in place and on, on communities? I mean, what is the, uh, the problem or the wrong that, that might be righted or, or sort of adjusted by, by this action? We, it's reasonable to expect that when you, only one thing can happen when you have mandatories. Mandatories can only push sentencing up, right? And so removing them can only push them down somewhat. And what it's reasonable is to expect that low-level drug dealers, many of whom are users, will be locked up somewhat less as a result of this legislation. And uh, and I'm interested, you know, in, in, in a lot of these criminal justice debates, uh, often then everybody sort of turns to the views of district attorneys. They're the guys on the, and, and women on the front lines prosecuting the laws of the Commonwealth. And so this week we've heard from some of the DAs, I think, you know, reactions to the bill that were not all that surprising. They've been pretty firm uh, in general in opposing relaxing any mandatory minimum drug sentences. They've testified recently before your committee, I think, to that effect. But um, but uh, Dan Conley, the Suffolk County District Attorney, um, actually put out a statement earlier this week in which he said he's actually uh, would support uh, some of the provisions, including repealing the school zone uh, uh, automatic mandatory sentence, and and I think the one for second offenses. Um, it just seems to suggest certainly some rethinking on his part. I mean, he was he was uh, nothing if not uh, you know adamant recently in, in speaking out against some of these issues uh, when they've been brought up. Uh, what, I mean, what's your reaction to that, or what do you make of of, of those comments from uh, from uh, Dan Conley? Well, first of all, I think Dan Conley is a serious thinker about these issues, and you know I appreciate his his progressive approach to looking at what we can do. Um, I think I think all of the DAs, and, and I'm going to speak, um, you know, are thoughtful. I mean, one of the things that goes on in this debate is that when people talk about these issues, we sometimes almost talk about them as, as if the DAs were sort of crazy, you know, as if they were doing something that wasn't what the public was asking for. But I, I'm not one who would say that. I mean, I think the DAs as a group are thoughtful about who they, who they um, prosecute and, um, you know, are fighting real crime. And so I'm, I'm not – I don't want to be critical of DAs, but I think it tends to happen in this conversation about mandatories that, that the, the, the DAs sort of shape up as the bad guys and um, the public and, – and, and, they, and they, I think – I honestly think they're a little sort of hurt by that. Because they say, wait a minute, you, don't you think we let these guys go? I mean, we don't, we're not trying to lock up people with a drug habit. We're not, we're not, that's not how we are. Many of these DAs have been defense attorneys. You know, they, they come into the job from a, from, a, from a standpoint of seeing both sides of it. So I think, it's, I think one of the things that I'm trying to be careful in this debate to do is not, is not to make out the DAs as the bad guys or the bogey people. Um, they're, they're serious people with the interests of the community at heart. And uh, so I, I'm not, I, I think that as a group, they, they are uncomfortable with going too far in 
the direction of repealing mandatories because it does kind of weaken their hand, weaken their decision-making role. But Right. I mean, they're really giving up leverage or power, which almost, in general, people don't like to do that, right? Yeah, people don't want to do that, and they're not sure how far it's going to go, and so they don't, so they're going to, they're going to kind of tap the brakes uh, in the in the comments that they're making as a group, and I understand that, but I'm hopeful that um, we'll get through this process, and at the end of the day, the, DA, the process, the DAs will say, well, you know, this was a pretty fair package. It took, you know, some tools away from us, and we understand the legislature's trying to reduce incarceration, uh, but we have the tools we need to punish the most serious offenders, you know, the, the, the traffickers, um, and to continue to respond to that problem. And in fact, we've got some somewhat better tools. So hopefully the public interest, as, as they see it, will be um, adequately defended in this process. So the, you talked about the process. Let's talk a little bit about the politics of, of getting this through Beacon Hill. I assume you're fairly confident that the bulk of your bill will make it through the Senate, right? Well, I, I need to be careful, and, and I never take my colleagues' thoughts uh, for granted. I expect that uh, we'll see a, a number of amendments to this bill, some proposed to make it um, more lenient, uh, some to move the other direction. And um, you know, my, my general strategy is that I just I, I want to see the body do what it thinks is the right thing. Um, I, you know, I have a, I have my own perspective. I'll certainly urge that, but I'm going to respect my colleagues' uh, decisions about the individual pieces. Uh, but I do hope that at the end of the day we come out of the bill with come out of the process with a strong vote in support of a bill that we can send on to the House for their consideration. And speaking of the House, now uh, it's often the House is often portrayed as resistant to this, but the Speaker sort of indicated that he's in favor of maybe two bills dealing with this issue, well, and he's he's brought aboard um, the former Supreme Court Chief Justice. Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice Roderick Ireland to advise him and the House on how to proceed here. How do you read the tea? I mean, I know you're not a member of the House and they've got their own thing to do, but how do you read those tea leaves? I think it's really clear that the House is serious about taking up legislation that, you know, that's broadly about criminal justice reform and we have the CSG bill focused on reentry issues, but they're definitely going to take up this, uh, you know, everything else bill. And you know where they go with it remains to be seen, but I think I think they're approaching it seriously. I know my co-chair Claire Cronin is approaching the issue seriously. I know they're going to take up a bill, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they do and looking forward to working with them through that process. What do you know about Ireland's perspective on this issue? Well, I, I, I'm sure it's a very informed perspective, but beyond that, I uh, I don't know too much. But he hasn't spoken out like Chief Justice Gantz has on on some of these issues. No, he he, a, he didn't do that in the same way. Okay. And just for our listeners, Chief Justice Gantz came out very strongly against most mandatory minimum sentences. Yes. And has been pushing criminal justice reform. Yes. Uh, from his position as Chief Justice. Yes. And, and well, there's, there's a lot of other things in the bill, and I know uh, the mandatory minimum drug sentences has gotten a lot of the attention. What, I mean, what do you think? I mean, that sort of would affect sort of the levels of incarceration or the length of sentences potentially. But there's other things in there, uh, as you say, sort of throughout from the front to the back of the system, including bail reform um, uh, and some things around fees uh, that sort of go more to your uh, sort of uh, concept of sort of reducing entanglements. I mean, what 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 do you think are kind of the most important things in there that you feel 
you know, would make a real difference in terms of of sort of the this sort of net or uh, you know blanket that sort of gets thrown over people once they get into the system, and then it's hard to get out from under. Well, I, I am I am excited about the stuff that relates to people's entanglements, uh, the reducing registry involvement, notably eliminating that idea that if you miss a court date, you're going to have your license suspended, eliminating a couple of other automatic license suspensions, putting and by the way, one of the interesting things is um, the, the kind of s- channels people into criminal justice involvement is just inability to pay fees, park tickets. So you, so you get a you get a ticket, you you, know, you you went you were speeding, you got a ticket. And, but you don't pay it because you can't. And um, the result is loss of license, and then you're involved in the courts, and then you probably can't get your license back, and you keep driving, and people end up going to jail that way. I've seen it, I've seen it happen many times. Um, and so we, we're, and, and by the way, that's, we've got the numbers. That happens about 20 times more often in places like Lowell and Brockton than it does in places like Lexington and Wellesley. This is the, you know, the criminal justice system you know, tied together with a registry system really is one that's an awful lot harder on people of limited means than it is on people who have some means because money is just part of the equation. So we're trying to reduce that. We're trying to have the registry allow payment plans for, for tickets to just, just that's a step forward. It'll, we'll see how far, it, how, how much it helps. We're trying to, we were eliminating parole fees. I mean, the idea that someone comes out of doing three years in prison, they're going to have a hard time getting a job if they're ever going to succeed in getting a job, and we want them to come up with $80 a month. Uh, you know they're sleeping on somebody else's couch, and you're going to come up with eighty dollars a month. Well, that's not going to come from them. It's, a, it's and it sets a terrible kind of negative dynamic in place of the system is kind of exploiting them and, and asking for things for them instead of helping them out. Uh, so we, we we eliminate that. We eliminate indigent council fees. We phase those out over three years. So that's an, another chunk of change out of, of people's pocket that uh, you know they don't have an ability to pay. So that's an important category of stuff. I'd like to do much more there. That's something I want to keep working on over, over the years. And then all this stuff with the criminal records, uh, there's a whole set of things we're doing there that I think will um, make it easier for people to put their mistakes behind them and get jobs and, most, and very importantly, housing. A lot of your tone, I, I could see someone that has become entangled in the criminal justice system or, or experienced it firsthand would, would know exactly what you're talking about and relate to it. But the vast majority of people don't have any connection. How do you sell, sell your ideas? What, I mean, you're, you're saying you're not going to save, you're not, that's not why you're in this, to save money. You're, By the way, I don't want to take that off the table. I mean, there, there, there may be some savings, but, but you're right. That, I'm saying that I think there's, there's justice. The two big issues are justice, public safety. So, I, and it, so when you're selling it to, let's say, folks in Belmont, they're asking you about, why are you spending so much time on this? What do you say to them? Listen, I think there's a whole lot of people who are motivated by uh, uh, justice issues. There's a whole lot of people in the in the in the left end of the spectrum that that are um, motivated and concerned by things they've seen happen in the criminal justice system over the past few years that are very troubling, that are that are that are at the front of the news, and they want to see things change. So I certainly have a lot of constituents who are enthusiastic about that kind of change. I also have constituents who say, you know, what the heck are you talking about? Crime is the problem. You you, you know you're going down the wrong path. What happened to you? Uh, I, I get that, uh, but I think those are folks that. Um, you know they, they they have a legitimate concern as well, and we and we and we, so we're not what we have to explain there is, you know we're we're not compromising public safety. We think we're going to do things that are going to improve public safety because we're going to see people getting back on their feet instead of just stewing in the criminal justice system. But isn't that what 
liberal Democrats here in Massachusetts have always been fearful of, that they'll do something that'll come back to bite them later on as perceived as soft on crime? Well, you know, and, and we're not taking on parole. That's, that's like the worst thing uh, is, is the parole thing because you have people who get out and then they do terrible things. It, it's, it's really harder on judges and parole officers that, that, these, that make individual decisions. Um, the, 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 the label soft on crime is absolutely something that people worry about. But I think right now there's a lot of recognition People have seen it, that the people get chewed up by the system, and it, it does a lot of harm. I, 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 think, I think there's a recognition out there. And it's certainly something that uh, I really believe I've seen and I'm very comfortable standing up in front of a crowd and saying, you know, this is something we got to do. Well, uh, Senator Will Brownsberger, uh, thanks so much for coming in to talk about these issues with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, for my colleague, Bruce Small, I'm Michael Jonas. You have been listening to another installment of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. You can uh, hear us every week online on our website. You can also subscribe for, via SoundCloud or iTunes. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah.